Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Yeah, without further ado, um, let me introduce our two um, writers and scholars for today. Uh, David Sign is the University of California President's Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of African American Studies at UCLA. His first book, Fearing Inflation, Inflating Fears, uh, is forthcoming from the University of North Carolina Press. And Max Felker Cantor is a visiting assistant professor of um, American and African American history at Ball State University. He earned his PhD in US history from USC in 2014. Uh, please join me in welcoming David and Max. Thank you all for coming. Um, we're really excited to have this conversation um, in LA um, about policing in Los Angeles. So I am going to talk a little. I don't know if I'm actually going to read anything from the book, per se, but I have a little overview of the book, and then David and I will um, have a conversation um, about some questions, and we'll take some, we'll open it up for a larger discussion. Um, and so, um, and so thank you to Skylight Books for having us. Thank you, David, for being willing to talk with me about this. Um, I'm really excited to share this work and question, and to raise some interesting questions. Um, so my book, Policing Los Angeles, um, which is all over the store, apparently, um, is a history of policing politics and um, anti-police abuse movements in Los Angeles from roughly the 1960s to the 1990s, um, using largely the 1965 Watts Uprising and the 1992 Los Angeles Rebellion as bookends to frame um, the overall narrative of the book. Um, these two events separated by about three decades um, often called riots, though I use the terms uprisings and rebellions um, to think a little bit more critically about them as not lawless, but as political acts, um, were my route into the main subjects of the book around policing, anti-police abuse movements, seeing those moments as anti-police protests, um, very specifically, um, and that pushed policymakers to make reforms, or at least that was the goal. Um, I use these two moments um, for neat, a neat timeline, but also because both of those events are spurred by episodes of police abuse or the racism in the criminal justice system. Um, these two events pose a kind of fundamental question or paradox that I raise in the book, which is why, like how and why after um, the intense anti-police protest in 1965 in Watts, 27 years later, why do you then get another uprising around anti-police movement, or, or around policing? Why, after three decades, had effectively the racism of the LAPD not changed? Um, in particular, it's more even more puzzling because this happens in a 20 to 25 year period when Los Angeles is under contr the control of a liberal African-American mayor, Tom Bradley. And so the question I raised that these events posed in the, the kind of larger context is, why by 1992, 91, 92, 
does the LAPD look more militarized, more aggressive, just as racist as it was in 1965, even though you had three decades of supposed liberal reforms in the city? And what explains that is kind of the question that I raise in the book um, to frame the book. And, you know, and I explain that in many ways. Um, and that it, it reveals the key theme of the book that, and that's what I call the police power. Um, and that the police organize, the LAPD in this case, organize politically to maintain their authority and independence from external oversight or, and accountability from political officials. So the police department was actually deliberate in creating its own power and independence in the city and becoming a partisan entity in the city in a way that they were insulated or more powerful than the politicians that were supposedly were overseeing them. And so that's one of the kind of ways I explain the kind of central um, argument and theme of the book. Um, and as the LAPD carved out this authority over these three decades, they attempted to produce and enforce what I argue was a racially unequal social order through get tough practices and law and order policies. Um, and, but as I stress in the book as well, which is really important, I think, especially in our given moment, especially just last week when the police officers in the um, case of Eric Garner aren't charged, that this book is also about anti-police abuse movements. It's about the African-American and Latinx communities in the city over three decades who pushed back against racist police practices um, to, and pushed to bring more accountability and transparency to the Los Angeles Police Department. Um, and so it's a story of groups that many people know, like the Black Panthers in the 1960s, but one of the central actors of the book is also the Coalition Against Police Abuse which formed in 1976 as a coalition of black and brown residents to challenge and push back against continued police killings in the 1970s that then existed for three decades. And so they're a central part of this story too of the interaction between the police department and activists constantly pushing back. And so we can think of the, the, those groups as a lin the long lineage of groups we see today like um, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition and the youth, you know, um, Black Lives Matter in LA and others that this is the kind of groundwork um, that was laid that I lay out in the book. Um, so in some ways this book is as much about what did not change between 1965 and 1992 as what did because as we see the police department is really resistant to change um, and we could take that story to today. I'm sure there will be some questions about the kind of present nature of policing. Um, and the story I tell in this um, book about the relationship between, between police, politicians, and activists demonstrates also that the images of recent episodes of police shootings and killings that we might think of as new are not new at all. And that there's a long kind of continuity in these kind of battles. And so a few kind of takeaways that I hope you kind of come away from our discussion and I'm sure will come up is that the pro police resisted all but the most limited demands for reform made by activists and residents. Um, the police were able to organize politically and ensure their con continued position of power within Los Angeles. Um, and this happened because of a convergence of interests among politicians across the spectrum, both conservative and liberal. 
And so one of the arguments I make is that Tom Bradley actually was invested in increasing the police power, even as he was saying he was reforming the police department. And we see that today with Democratic officials who are nominally critical of police departments, but do a lot to say they're still supporting the police. Um, at the same time, the second kind of thing is that black and Latino activists made the police a central component of struggles for racial justice, um, which is a theme we continue to see, but this is one that's kind of a central piece of the book that I think we sometimes lose when we think of the 60s as a kind of a large, it's part of this larger freedom struggle, but if we centralize police, we see that as um, state violence as being a kind of central piece of struggles for equality. Um, and then finally, one thing that, we can, that I, we can kind of see is that while this is about Los Angeles, it can easily be a story of policing in nearly any post-war American city is that this is a story about policing writ large um, in the ways that um, the police power insulated itself, was invested in protecting both capital and a racially hierarchical order. Uh, and that, but Los Angeles also presents a key site for the investigation of policing and politics, um, in part because the LAPD was at the forefront of so many innovations in policing through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, we can talk about things like SWAT or gang databases or any sort of um, asset forfeiture, all sorts of stuff that they are key in developing um, that foreshadowed the developments in cities across the country. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about looking at LA is as a multiracial city in the 60s and 70s, LA then was also a precursor to thinking about how other cities in the kind of 21st century have become more multiracial in the way that the LAPD um, was handling those kind of multiracial issues, um, in particular around immigration and the policing of refugees. And so the LA is oftentimes seen as on the forefront of supposed reforms in policing of immigrants um, in the 70s due to Special Order 40, which we can talk about saying that they wouldn't ask people's undocumented status around un being documented or undocumented when um, in the interest of crime control. Um, but the ways the police actually enforced that in many ways was a, was a way to criminalize immigrant communities in other ways. And so they were on the forefront of that that we see you know, in the news today around policing. And so I think with that is kind of an overview of the arguments of the book and kind of what the book does. Um, if we have time later, maybe I'll read from it, but I rather would have a conversation. So I'll let David jump in. Awesome. So um, I have a bunch of questions for Max, and then I'm sure we'll open up uh, for, for your all questions. But, but before I get into those, I just want to uh, sing my praise about this book, which is that, and to say that it's really, really an urgent and crucial history that everyone in Los Angeles should learn, but also uh, also everyone throughout throughout the country. I think there's a lot of lessons in this book for organizers and activists and everyone to be to be uh, engaged people within within Los Angeles. So so I highly recommend you you buy a copy. Um, but before um, so so now I have some questions. So I was hoping you could take. Our, our audience through what changed in your thinking from when you first set out on this book to, to, to when you, you know, finished it and sent it off mm -hmm. to press. And I ask this partly because one of the things that uh, is just overwhelming and a recurring theme in 
in the book again and again is that the, and you, you mentioned this a little bit, but it really is overwhelming, is that these a, attempts to reform policing end up strengthening and expanding police power. And, and you show this in kind of this painstaking detail of mm -hmm. how the aspirations and the demands of activists are, end up kind of, you know, uh, as I said, expanding, expanding uh, police power. And so, in a sense, the way it reads is that this was taught to you by your archive. That, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I was wondering if you could talk about that process as a researcher, mm -hmm. but then also maybe um, talk about what lessons that holds for activists today working around issues of police accountability and trying, mm -hmm. to, trying to demand greater degrees of justice. Right, no, that's a great question. Um, and so the story um, of the kind of trajectory of how my thinking changed, and to give you a little background of how this book developed, is it started at the Southern California Library um, on Vermont Ave, you know, just south of USC, um, a social justice library in the middle of um, South Central in the community. Um, they had the Coalition Against Police Abuse papers there. And so the book started as really thinking about a book about activism and a book about anti-police activism. Um, and in the 70s and 80s and thinking about coming out of a moment when Black Lives, I was writing this right when Black Lives Matter was kind of on the cusp um, of developing in 2000, really 2010, 12, 13 was kind of when I started the, really writing the book. The book obviously was just published last fall. And so it started as a book about anti-police activism, but as I was reading those archives um, about community members, as I understood, is that the Coalition Against Police Abuse, Kappa, was centrally invested in also thinking about political power in the city. And so that led me to think more about Tom Bradley and the politics of the city um, that were in operation at the time because that's who, who the activists were kind of constantly pushing against. Um, and so the question I had is, well, why, and activists were successful in a number of ways. For example, they, they were able to dismantle the LAPD's intelligence division in the early 1980s that had been spying on anti-police abuse and other social justice organizations through the 70s with the help of the ACLU. But um, is that they were constantly pushing politicians to try to hold the police more accountable. And so as I started to follow those archives, it led me from just not just a book about activism to one that was also about politics in the city and political power. And so I started to then think about, well, what was it that meant that you know, these activists continued pushing the same questions and same demands for accountability um, over time? And so that's kind of the genealogy of the, the archives that then I spent many hours at UCLA in the Tom Bradley archives trying to understand how the city power structure was responding and adapting to demands for greater accountability around policing. And so that's this kind of genealogy um, and then, of course, it came as I was as I was developing the book around policing, was trying to think about, well, what does reform really mean? Um, because one of the takeaways that you might think of if you read the book is, reforms aren't going to really solve the problem. In some ways, you can see the kind of underlying argument of the book is that policing itself might be the problem. Uh, and so that's kind of where I've come to with, I think, that's not an explicit argument in the book, but it's an implicit one if you if you read through it, is that it's really that policing itself, what we ask and what we expect of the police to do becomes really the, the kind of core of the problem um, 
and I think that's kind of also the, and that's what the activists were saying in the 70s and 80s is saying like, the police and what we have invested, what we have empowered them to do in terms of protecting capital, protecting investment, protecting certain peoples and groups at the expense of others, or you know, and policing the groups that are most left behind by the kind of growing inequality and the uh, um, unemployment and recessions in the 80s, is that we've allowed the police then to serve as the kind of way to contain those surplus populations, right? And so. The activists are saying that. So, in terms of thinking about then activism today, and I think activists have taken this, understand this, is that the and that's the kind of calls for like abolishing ICE and other things, is that the police power itself becomes the problem. And so, I think those are some of the lessons from the past, also that I think activists have have taken on, but also to understand the ways that, then to explain that without getting too into the weeds on it, that the police power and policing they're really nimble. And because I think one of the lessons of the book is that every time the police experience a restriction on their authority, they found another way to expand their discretionary power into other areas. So an example of that is like in the early 1970s, as the police see themselves under kind of greater and greater restraint due to court decisions and things saying like you can't use certain you know evidence, you have to give defendant, you know, supposed suspect certain rights, you know, and you can't, you know, you have to read them Miranda rights and other things, is they start to then expand, well, if we can't police in that way, what we start to do is say, well, we have, we need to now police in schools. And so we, so they start to like respond to restraints by saying, well, now we have a gang and drug crisis beginning in 1971, 72, 73, and we need to respond to that. And so we expand into the schools and you get the police going in and having like undercover drug arrests in, in LA schools in the early 1970s. Um, and, and then so there's, they're really nimble in responding to constraints by saying, well, now we have a new crisis that needs to be addressed. And so they, res and, and they use those moments of crisis to then expand. So I think to, to under, for activism today to understand that police, and I think activists understand this, is the nimbleness of police to, to even when we see a restraint, that then they can maneuver around it just by redefining the problem in many ways. And another, another example that you give in the book is one of Mayor Bradley's kind of um, efforts is to struggle around the police budget. And I think one thing that comes up is um, asset forfeiture becomes this you know, alternative alternative funding stream for, right. um, which also gets into scale stuff because a lot of that asset forfeiture gets put in the law by, by the federal government. <laughs> but, you know, uh, that, that kind of leads me into the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is that in the book, police chiefs emerge as some of, if not the most powerful, some of the most powerful, if not the most powerful public officials. And oftentimes their power eclipses the city council or mayors. Mm -hmm. um, I know there, there's often been a similar problem, uh, at least in LA County, with regard to you know, the county sheriff versus, versus the board of supervisors. And I was wondering, based on your research, what, what activists can do in, in the face uh, of, such, of such a situation? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question to really think through. And uh, you know, I, there are some lessons I think we can learn in terms of the power of police chiefs. I mean, some of it, like, 
one thing that does come out of 92, if we want to see some success, is that there were structural elements in the city charter that up until 92 gave the police chief essentially life tenure. Um, the thing that's amazing is, and if you look at the archives, is up until 92 when charter after charter amendment F was passed, is that the police chief could only be fired for cause, but anyone know who wrote their own self-reports of the department? The police chiefs, up until 92, wrote their own evaluations of the whole entire department. And you know, if you read Gates's reports, Daryl Gates, everything is glowing. Everything's excellent. Community relations in 1989, like after Operation Hammer and the Dalton Street Raid, when they went in and like destroyed this, uh, this house at 41st and Dalton, um, to the extent at which the Red Cross had to come in to house people um, because they thought there were gang members and drugs and they didn't really find anything. Um, after that year, he still says community relations and everything is great. And so there was no just cause because the police chiefs are writing their own reports. So one thing that is, that can I think be, that the 92 lesson is, you can actually create structural changes through <clears throat> referenda and so like mobilizing around it because 92 then, while it was, I argue in the book, essentially a limited change, actually said, well now the police chief can only be reappointed, has to be appointed to one five year term and then has to be reappointed. And so it's not automatic and you can only serve two terms. So it's still a long time, it's still a lot of power, they still maintained a lot of authority, but it did limit structurally. And so if we push, in some ways it's pushing to train, if we, have to, if we change the structure of the politics and power in cities, we can actually start to change what the police chief is able to do. Because in a lot of cities, they're in positions in which um, the city structure, the political structure of the cities, allows them to, to operate in, in ways that are unaccountable, more powerful than oftentimes the politicians because, and so if we can push at some of that, I think those are some lessons we can. I think another thing that I, I wonder if you have insights into on sort of that similar line of thinking is what, how scholars or historians or political scientists or people uh, in a sense, I think need to rethink power structures of their city, you know, along mm -hmm. this. It's like, we're voting on the mayor, all these things like that be, uh, based on some of the lessons of your book. Like, you know, this might be a little too inside baseball, but I feel like political historians really need to take police chiefs and sheriffs a lot more seriously mm -hmm. than, um, than they do. That's one of the things that I really learned from, yeah. from your book. No, I mean, I'd agree with that. I think it's that we, if we rethink what is political, right, it's not just those people who are getting elected. It's, you know, especially in, if we think of policing and law enforcement, you know, I mean, the sheriff, in it, I don't write about this as much in the book, but like LA County and the sheriff's department is, you know, in, has a greater extent in many ways than the LAPD, you know, because it's in, in so many other areas. And so, and they're really powerful and they become, I mean, the sheriff's elected, so that's a different kind of piece, but. I think that also, in a sense, brings up some of these questions as well about public archives and public records and things like that, something I know you have a lot of experience with um, well, struggling around. So I was wondering if yeah. you could talk to us a little about well, that. I mean, I think that's a central piece too, is that, you know, we all know police do not want you to see any of their records, right? Is that they are say so that's part of the struggle of, the, of writing this book. So I was talking to David earlier, is that 
I didn't do a lot of oral interviews for this book. And part of that was because I wanted to create an archivally rooted, like documented book about the, about the role of the police so that they couldn't just come back and say, well, that's just you know, what community members thought. It's not what we actually did. And I wanted to find a paper trail from the police, um, which I think I was successful in doing. Um, part of that was because the Coalition Against Police Abuse, and this is kind of a lesson for current day activists, kept all the records they could of the police at the time. So their archive was as much a, a kind of police archive as it was about an anti-police archive. And so, but transparency in police records is vital, you know, in our present to also, you know, um, especially when we think of like, oh, reforms, body cameras are great. But as we know, police aren't willing to show us body, body cam footage, right? And so that kind of the, the police records, you know, one of the lessons of the, and Kelly Lytle Hernandez at UCLA and Million Dollar Hoods have done enormous work, you know, to, and with lawsuits to open up the LAPD archives. And, and that's like a vital, vital thing, not just to write histories, but for our kind of present moment to say like, police can't just be these unaccountable black boxes where they're, you know, there's no transparency. And, um, and they, part of the lesson of the book too is the police do a lot of work to keep their records closed. Um, and you see it with police unions, you see it, you know, this real effort to say like, we're not gonna allow anyone to see our record, public transparency of records. Um, so. Your mention of body cameras brings up something that you talk about in the conclusion of the book that I think is really important is that this book, especially Mayor Bradley, there's a lot of connections between his history and the type of reforms that were proposed under President Obama's policing task force. And I remember even, you know, just a few weeks after after the election, one of one of President Obama in 2008, one of his first announcements was that he was going to reinstate the community-oriented policing grants that that President Bush had had cut. Mm -hmm. And so uh, again, we see this recurrence of kind of community policing as as one of the the answers. Mm -hmm. But as you said, police on the ground can operate with such. Um, great degrees of, I think the word you used was nimble, nimbleness. I'm not sure if that's mm -hmm. a word, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, community policing is the other thing that everyone is talking about, like get, get police back into neighborhoods, get them to work with communities, understand communities. Um, Neighborhood-oriented policing is another one, you know, these kind of ideas of let's get the police to, un to work with communities and all of that. And one of the lessons, at least that I would argue from the book, is that in many ways that was just another means by which the police could be infiltrating into communities and criminalizing communities in particular ways. Um, because what we started to see, what residents would say in some of the, the evidence that I have in the book is that the LAPD was trying community policing in the 1970s. And Gates gets rid of it after he comes into power and through the 80s. But they were trying it. And what the community members were saying is all the police did was come in and tell us what they wanted us to do, not wouldn't listen to us, even though you had supposedly community policing. Um, the other thing that we see after 92 is community-oriented policing efforts, because it was kind of pushed forward after the Rodney King investigations, is a project called Weed and Seed, um, which was a federal program, but that was adopted in LA, 
which was effectively like community policing, we're still gonna criminalize and arrest those people we see as criminal, which were oftentimes young black and brown men. Um, and at the same time, then we're gonna give you money for like to develop jobs and social programs and other things in communities. But it, what it effectively still did was allow the police to expand their you know, uh, authority to police and rip apart communities just in the name of saying, well, we're gonna give you money for social services at the same time. And so community policing sounds nice a lot of the times, but what ends up, how it's implemented a lot of, in many ways, at least in the past, is just another way the police can expand their purview and authority. And so we see that today when, you know, that the police have become essentially the first line, like mental health agents, you know, when they go out and respond to things. And so they're, we've given the police so much authority in all these ways because that's who we've decided we call, right? And I think one lesson of the book is there, there have been moments when there are alternatives where we've made choices, at least at a political level, to say the choice that, we, that people made in the city was more police. And so that's... Well, I have a few more questions, but I think um, let's open it up to see, to see what, what you all have to, to ask Max and, yeah, what you all have to say. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that goes way back because, like, you know, under William Parker in the 50s, um, who was a, a police chief in the 50s, um, and in, up to 1966, basically, when he dies, um, is that they were, you know, Dragnet, the police um, show, is that the LAPD was invested in that. Um, and so performing a, so I, there is an element of, like, performativity, too, of, like, the police trying to shape their image. And the aggressiveness, too, the LAPD, I think, you know, I would, I, I mean, I don't know where you've been, but I would argue that in many ways the police everywhere have become very aggressive, but the LAPD had a very long kind of history of saying, like, we're an aggressive police force. And in the 80s, Gates is like, I would rather, like, be aggressive, you know, be accused of being too aggressive than, like, not handling crime. And so they had this like long history and it's partially related to Hollywood, I would argue, and the publicity and trying to shape, but I would argue it's also more as much about them trying to shape their image to the public, right? We're, especially in the 80s, we're going out because they're, it's happening within the national context of like national news magazines talking about like the crisis of crack and gangs and gang violence and drug violence and conflating all these Things. So they're saying like, so there's these hysteria, really moral panics around drugs and crime and gangs in the 80s that then the police frame themselves as, look, we are, we're being aggressive to solve the problem. And it's really a way, you know, I would argue, <laughs> it was a way to kind of make the city safe for the west side, right? For white middle class west side in the valley, right? So, you know, it's, it's an image thing there too, I think. So. 
Right. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're, no, I mean, the answer, you know, they're, uh, the answer is, comes back to, I think, the choices that we made at times of, like, um, David has pointed this quote out to me, is that you get in the 70s, you have young black and Latino, they were described as gang members by the police, who are saying, like, are you going to give us jobs? And so those are so, but they don't get that's not the services that are given in the seven. So there are moment, these historical moments of choices that get made um, that build up over time, right? And so where we get to the 80s, and effectively the only choice people have left is the police because we've constricted all the kind of um, available options for people, um, especially in the most kind of um, marginalized community. Yeah, I, are you thinking like Neighborhood Watch stuff? Because yeah. I know we've talked about that before. Um, neighborhood Watch groups start in that same, like late seven, in that kind of same time period. Um, so they're happening at the same time, and some of them are working with the police. So they're, they're integrated, but, and it's, uh, some of the Neighborhood Watch stuff is promoted by the police too, right? And so I think, you know, in one way is by the 80s when they're Neighborhood Watch and community crime control groups, the police are, invested in those because they see them as ways to create these partnerships in many ways to get those, to get communities in, on board with the police's kind of law and order mission, right? And so I think they're intertwined in that way. Um, with all transparency, I don't do a ton with neighborhood watch groups in the book, but I would see them as kind of intertwined in ways. I'm doing some more new work that deals a little bit with that stuff. But. Yeah, I mean, like, without being too inflammatory, I guess, the one answer is, like, revolution, right? But, like, because, um, I mean, because if you think about it that way, like, if we really, if the police power, because what I mean by the police power is the, uh, essentially a power that we've invested in kind of, like, Western democracies of the state is, the state has the authority to ensure the social welfare of society. And what that morphs into with police power is it's saying, well, the state then also has the, uh, the authority and the ability to maintain order. And what that then does is say, well, if the state has that authority, then it has the ability to kind of, in any sense, like, so it, that can, but that can mean, the police power can also mean things like social security. Because if it's about maintaining social welfare, it's about supporting, you know, the welfare of society. So it could be, so if we think, if we, push back at redefining police power doesn't just have to be about the institution of the police, but about, well, what if we actually had thought of it in terms of really supporting social programs and other things? That's a form of the police power too, in a different way, and so, I think. 
Yeah, and that's what, yeah, the LAPD was talking about that in the 80s, right? They were talking about, and so, and, you know, the, the and that's where the LAPD in the 80s, and it was talking about needing to ramp up. We need new, we need new handgun, we need nine millimeter, we need, like, you know, new bullets, all sorts of kind of things that they're going to use. And so, you know, what I would hear from there is that, like, one argument would say, like, like gun control legislation, right, is, like, one way to think about that. Um, and so there is that. So I think, you know, that is a piece that, that's important um, to think through in terms of, you know, writ large gun control legislation for a variety of reasons, not just for police, but for communities themselves, right? Because you had communities in South and East L.A. in the 80s saying, like, W trying to organize themselves to stop gun violence um, and responding and kind of to try to police themselves in many ways. Um, but then there's still, no. oh, sorry, I was just going to yeah. add on to that. But there's still these moments that come up in the book that where, so for example, I think sometime maybe like the early 70s, uh, there's over 150 right-wing bombings in, mm -hmm. in LA. And at the same time, LA's politicized, LAPD's politicized um, spying is only focused exclusively on, on left-wing organizations. Mm -hmm. So to me, there's yeah. also this contradiction there of like why, like mm -hmm. I, 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 I think, you know, I totally agree with what Max, you were saying about, yeah, these weapons, like we have the second amendment, it really is, astonishing how many weapons are out there in in the United States and there's still these on the ground choices by by police to focus on certain kinds of um, you know in in that instance you know, a violent a potential violence that did not exist empirically mm -hmm. versus you know over a, a bombing every other day for, or every few yeah. days for, uh, for a, a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, oh. I know we have. Well, I mean, by and large, in the 70s with this, there was this, the division in the LA, in LA was called the Public Disorder Intelligence Division, or PDID, um, and it goes through a whole series of lawsuits um, in the late 70s, early 80s, like, and it just gets dismantled, but then it's reformed as the Anti-Terrorist Division, uh, but or what they frame as the Anti-Terrorist Division, um, and it's supposed to go under, undergo annual audits and all this sort of stuff, but um, one of the big arguments about, like, in the early 70s of, like, why there was such, a, is that they were framing kind of progressive and left-wing activists as more threatening to the or to social order, even though there was evidence that there was violence on the kind of conservative right. And so in terms of, and it was a, it was the way the police constructed a problem. Um, and I argue in the book that it was as, it was a lot of it was about that it was the anti-police abuse movements that were on the left side that they saw as threatening um, the, the other thing that's so interesting is that you, and I don't remember if it's in the book at all, is that, kind of to the point there, is that you actually have police departments 
advocating for like gun control at times, which is something we don't often, wouldn't think of today, right? Is that, because they're saying they're a weapon, and so it's this weird like, kind of flip that I don't think like today, you know, today, I don't know what the exactly the politics of police departments on like gun control legislation. It's a weird kind of shift over time, I think. I think there was a question in the back. Yeah, I mean, I think one, I mean, one of the kind of ways to think about it is like, is that those, pro, those quote, social problems get defined as police problems, right? And so it's trying to rethink those as ones of, that need to be policed and redefine them as like, you know, I th the evidence, most evidence says that like the, the, the best thing for people, for ho houseless people is like to get people in housing. Right, and so it's like that is the fastest, you know, best way, you know, and David, and so it's like get people housing, right? It's like we can rethink that, and you know, it's, it's not about defining it as something that needs to be contained or controlled, but just like get people housing. David writes about full employment, right? Like if we had a policies that are about employing and ensuring that people have access to, to full employment programs, whether that's government funded or not, right? Is that it's, so I think those are, those are bigger kind of questions, but those are also ones, um, and I come back to this as a historian, right, about choices and contingency at times, like when there are moments when there were possibilities when those things get shut down. And we're in a moment now, I think, where, you know, um, the choice, you know, is that the police have long, long been invested in really it's a protection of capital, right? And so it's protect investment, protect property, and that becomes one of the, you know, if we redefine that, you know, and try to rethink that, you know, is that it's, why is, you know, that always the kind of central piece? Um, you know, in Garcetti too, you know, there's a real investment in, you know, economic development and all these sorts of things, but that then marginalized certain communities. And I think we can actually make different choices. Um, they're hard, but David, I don't know if you have Thoughts, but um, I'll just say one uh, one more thing, um, and, and then and then I'd love to uh, to hear your, your thoughts. Um, just to lift up a moment of history, which is which I'm sure everyone in this room knows something about, which is on August 28th, 1963, we have the March on Washington, Martin Luther King's famous "I Have a Dream" speech. Well, what were some of his dreams? What were the demands of the March on Washington? The demands included 
ending poverty, but a, a job guarantee, a job for anyone who wanted it, and a rise in the minimum wage to $2. That minimum wage today would be $17. Also, an end to police brutality. So, so many of these demands were the comprehensive demands of, of the civil rights movement. And when I think about you know, the work that Dr. King did, the work that his widow, uh, Coretta Scott King did, one thing that they were envisioning when they talked about guaranteed jobs for all people was for things like environmental conservation. In the late 1970s, Coretta Scott King's coalition was putting up solar panels to, and doing weatherization of homes to talk about what type of work needed doing. And, and I think we still see that vision today in things like the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. And I think especially when we th talk about houselessness in Los Angeles, right, is that there's, you know, few more urgent issues, at least as far as I can see it, towards reducing the police power that Max talks about than fighting for something like a Green New Deal. You know, we know, I mean, we know that it's houseless people who are going to face so much stress from, from acute heat that, that's increasing every day. Right, uh, and so uh, what? What would be a response to that? Well, demand housing is a human right. Okay, uh, it, to use the words of uh, the Bloods and Crips after the 1992, <laughs> uh, when they, when they formed the 1992 gang truce after uh, after the Rodney King uprising, they say, "Give us the hammer and nails, and we will rebuild this city." So I think to me that still remains yeah. the refrain yeah. Um, yeah, uh, to to struggle towards. Yeah, and that document is a fascinating, which we've, I think, had a long discussion about in some ways, is that the Bloods and Crips are undergoing a truce in the early 90s, and after 92, they essentially say, we know what needs to be done, give us, like, and what ends up happening is rebuild LA. And so they invest in, like, these kind of corporatized economic development policies, whereas the community members are saying, like, you know, jobs, other sorts of kind of responses to the unrest in 92, but what Bradley and other people coming out of it is this corporate model of just give tax incentives to corporations. Um, and so you get like Vaughn supermarkets saying like, we'll put supermarkets in food deserts in South Central. Those supermarkets are there for about five years and then they leave, right? And so those are kind of moments where we again invest, you know, this kind of ideal model, supposedly from politicians, of like empower corporations, right, through tax incentives to to invest in communities. I don't know if that.
I love this conversation. <laughs> this is, uh, no, 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 I, 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 I really appreciate it. I think it gets at a lot of the, the heart of what we're trying to struggle over and the heart of some, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, what we just saw between this conversation is part of what's getting struggled through in, in the time, and in the time period that Max, uh, that mm -hmm. Max documents. We were just talking about you know, Mayor Bradley, for example, in the late 1970s, he's supporting a federal governmental job guarantee. He's part of that coalition. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes time by 92 to rebuild LA, he's you know just saying corporations do it peter oberoff the right. who's the you know this big business guy yeah, like who was just the olympics guy you know in 1984 yeah so so in a sense i feel like you know what what we're witnessing part of this growing struggle and conversation about what type of economic development model um, and what type of social and political programs and what type of social welfare state can and should be built up is um, uh, is the residue of the time period that Max that yeah, Max and it's on. it's not only the time period I think and this is what I try to stress oh. you know is that it's it's the those that's the struggle over those issues is not divorced from policing right is that the police because if you look at the budgets especially if you look at the budgets in LA up until 1978 the police budget if you include pensions um, which I do in the book because I make an ar I argue that police pensions, even though it might not be like material on the ground, is that it, sh it's, it shows the, um, the scope of the kind of power of the police in the city through pen, is it's like 40% of the, of the city budget, if you include police budget, uh, the pensions. And the police, but it goes down after 78, after Prop 13, when there's budget reductions, um, and there's effort, Bradley does push forward pension reform, and so that's one thing that he does, and so it reduces down to like 25-ish, but there's these kind of ways that there's connections is that there's a constant investment in policing, you know, and it's a response to kind of cries for safety and all of that. But at the same time, it's, it's connected to these other issues too of like, if you're gonna fund one thing, it means that there's gonna, that other things are being left off the table. And so I think there's, they're intertwined. Well, and like you're kind of suggesting, those budgets, they don't just like, oh, predict the future. They literally produce it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that's really a crucial lesson. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm listening.
Well, I'm not necessarily an expert in asylum law, but I mean, I mean, I think that part of it is that like having like humane immigration practice, immigration policies, and like I think most economists and people would say, and I think there are some people in the room who probably know more about this than I do, um, is that actually as a for economic growth in the country, we actually need more migration than actually is happening. And because it is a it's racialized in a particular way, it gets framed as criminal and quote, illegal and all of that, but that um, there is actually a need for more immigration to the country, especially in terms of for economic growth models and things like that. That's, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, so I think, but I think there's, you know, um, a means to, Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. But David, I'm not going to. I would just say, and as an immediate answer um, to the human rights crisis, right. we need all of us engaging in activism to support the current immigrants' rights struggle. Um, I believe abolishing ICE right. is, you know, a uh, very moderate reform um, that we can that we can make uh, uh, of the system and is you know, kind of you know the thing that needs to be done tomorrow and we obviously well, I, I can't you know flip a switch but um, yeah that and reparations to all of those who who are currently being harmed in this situation yeah I mean the other thing that comes out of my book which I write about is that we also can push back against police departments that work with immigration officials. Is that, you know, is there's this long, you know, and it, this is the quote, sanctuary city stuff, is that there's a lot of police departments that are willing to cooperate with, with ICE. And so that's a place to kind of push back too. Um,
That's a, I mean, those are hard questions. I mean, I think it comes back to, I mean, the kind of, I don't know, the intricacies of like all the kind of um, legalities around some of the kind of current policies. But I, I mean, it comes back to like, those are, that's the way the, the police have insulated themselves. And that's where like actually pushing for certain types of like reforms in city struck in politics, like, and that requires organizing and election, you know, and referenda to say like, um, you know, and the big thing that's happening right now in California right, is, you know, the legislation that's around raising the burden of proof for officer-involved shootings, right? Is to say, like, we're not, we want to, the, the legislation is, I forget the, was it, I forget the numbers. They're saying, like, we want, we need to um, make it easier to indict police officers for killing, and that's a statewide Thing. And so there's push on that legislative agenda, and those are important first steps. One of the arguments I would that I kind of make in the book is that none of we're not going to solve this all in like tomorrow. Is that there's small pieces that you can chip away at, right? And then a lot of it's policy, a lot of it's like that referendum, um, because there's broader things like if we think of the Eric Garner case, like with is that the burden of like questions of intent of police action. You know, it's it's all legitimized, you know, if we legitimize it in law, you're never really going to get um, change in terms of the legitimacy of the police and having to prove, like, intent um, is not going to solve the problem, but, you know, is, is always going to leave the police, uh, the burden of proof so high to indict police officers for killing people, but there's small changes in terms of those small policies that can be pushed back against, um, I think, around organizing um, in terms of, like, opening records and, you know, getting police records that can be more attainable, right? And those are city level kind of things that can be mobilized and organized around, I think. So that's not a, a solution to your like individual problems um, or, you know, uh, case. And so.
Well, one of the small things that CAPA did, the Coalition Against Police Abuse in the, in the late 70s, is just pushed for a reform that the police officers had to, the police officers had to give out business cards anytime they had contact with. And so they, those are like small little pieces that cap, the activists were organizing around. Um, No. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, that gets back to, you know, I mean, the response of like, the responses we've had to like that shooting to school shootings is always, you know, the response, the over, the one dominant response has been, well, now just like train teachers, right, and give them guns, and yeah. like, you know, and it's more, 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 rather than like, you know, other choices, right, whether that's really limiting gun, gun control, or the, you know, all that sort of other, and,
think in I mean, theory. But do you have? It's a big question. But I mean, <laughs> my main thoughts yeah. is, you know, I, I have a lot of agreements with you uh, and we have to st start at this point of struggle and see what then new contradictions arise from that. So the Green New Deal and that estimation is now like, all right, we got the Green New Deal. Everything's perfect now. It's like, okay, now what are these new contradictions? You know, okay, like if, you know, everyone I know who's fighting for a job guarantee is not doing it with, you know, kind of like uh, protect borders ethos. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone I know in that struggle is you know, thinking about, yes, it must include you know, the right to, mm -hmm. for asylees, the right for immigrants to have rights to those, to those jobs. It's about expanding rights, not, um, not restricting them. And that's always a struggle. I'm sure that would be you know, one of the first things you know, to try and be that people would try and carve, that Congress people and senators would try and carve out from the legislation. So that to me is where kind of bottom-up grassroots movements are going to produce the, the, the change as, you know, as, um, you know, I, the politicians will not save us. You know, like, <laughs> it's us, it's us who will save uh, e each other right. through through our collective action. Right. To me, no that is anything. why I'm a historian. You know, why, what I think history teaches us. Mm -hmm. And chances are, we're gonna fight for 25 things and win two of them, and then we gotta continue to, to fight, fight for, for those 23. Yeah. And it will continue to unfold in that way. Um, though I'd love to win all 25 in one yeah. swell fell swoop, which is, right. I think, you know, the call for a revolution like that. But yeah, I, I think in all likelihood, done, right. it, it's much more of a process and that process right. has it's already process begun, over time. Yeah. you know. And, but but I, I certainly agree with you about mm -hmm. a, a lot of the limits mm -hmm. of 
social democracy as kind of the only, you know, as the end, as, as end. opposed to, you know, it's something we have to do to get the to foot off end. the foot off our collective necks to put us in a better place to to fight longer and harder and smarter. I'll leave it there. Well, I mean, that raises another question of like to problematize that a little bit about like what is defined as crime changes over time. And so what's happened, you know, is that what ha starts to happen is that behaviors that in one era wouldn't be defined as, quote, criminal get redefined as criminal in other time periods. And so, and we see that with houseless populations, right, is that you, you have people who are on the street and then you criminalize things like quote unquote camping on the street or you criminalize certain activity. So if we problematize even the kind of assumption of criminality around houselessness and, and not think of it in terms of even a police problem or again again as one of like, um, that a lot of what crime is is what we've defined, what laws define crime as, right? And those are again choices and so it's, um, and in, in the past, like in the book I write about, especially the one that comes up, that's come up recently is around gang databases and how people get put into gang databases under what definitions of behaviors. And like the, the LAPD's definitions and writ large nationwide, there were some definitions where they're like defining quote gang members. They're saying, well, black gang members like to wear white shirts, right? Like, I mean, and certain brands of shoes, right? And this is in the doc, and so it's, these are de defining, criminalizing certain behaviors, and so it criminalizes populations in ways. Um, and so I think houselessness, you know, we don't necessarily need to connect it to crime, but to connect it to, like, again, yes, pay people's medical bills, but like, just give people housing, right? Like, you know, um, and LA has a long history of being against things like public housing. Um, and so.
Yeah, I mean that. Well, in theory, it was supposedly a democratic impulse um, in the 1920s and 30s, a progressive era reforms when you had people in the, so a lot of the city charter reforms were done in the 20s and in the 30s, and they were efforts essentially saying like, we wanna get the politicians out of the police department because there's corruption. And so essentially those, at that moment in time, there were restructures to the city charter um, to say, we need, there's corruption in police departments because they're too in bed with politicians and what we need to do is divorce those things. So those were his, a historical moment when those reforms were seen as positive reforms to try to make the police you know, more professional and not political. Um, now, of course, that changes over time. So those are moments in the kind of early 20th century um, that reshape um, the politics in Los Angeles. And those don't, and then that gets reformed in the early 90s, as I was saying. That doesn't get kind of reshaped until the early 90s. And so it's, so those are, that's a much, that's that long history of LA city kind of politics um, that goes back to the early 20th century when they were trying, because LA was, the, the LAPD was one of the first departments to actually root out political corruption across the nation. Because you, in the later, like other departments um, had much more political corruption, like Chicago. and. You know, there's a great new book on Chicago policing um, where the machine in Chicago is much more involved um, in the police structure of the city um, well past World War II, whereas that really wasn't the case in Los Angeles, but it then created a different dynamic within which the LAPD related to the city politics. Debatable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the like. I mean, Bratton's kind of, you know, the bringing of Comstat policing and all that. I think the evolution of that has led to what, like, a lot of groups, right, like, in the current moment are thinking about, you know, the, that's been in the news over the last, what, five months is predictive policing. And how does that then, you know, the, the evolution of Comstat to predictive policing, you know, it's partnered with UCLA groups and all that. Um, but in many ways, what they've shown, at least, you know, and the LA Times has come out with, I think, a lot of reporting on this, that those programs end up just continuing to criminalize the same communities that have been criminalized. At least that's what the reporting has shown, you know, and there's a lot of pushback against, you know, the use of drones in police, you know, so there's all those, and I think we can link those to the legacies of Bratton, but a, a much longer legacy of technology and policing. Um, and so it's, you know, and so, and I know that like, there's been efforts to kind of stop some of those programs, then restart them, and there's kind of a, been a back and forth over the last few months. I haven't caught where we are right now, but um, I know the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition is really pushing at um, the, uh, again, you know, at, to really rethink the use of technology as the kind of panacea to police problems, right? Because technology is not just isn't gonna solve all the problems either, right, and so. And the long history of 
you know, policing technology from file cards used mm -hmm. in 1898 in right. the U.S. U.S. You know, intervention and em imperialism yeah. in the Philippines to where we are now. It, it, it has made police you know, and surveillance more efficient. It has enabled you know, greater degrees of control and greater infringement over, over civil liberties and human rights. Um, so I'm, based on that history, I'm very pessimistic uh, that, that new technology will, will help anything um, that, that is in the interest of, of the world that I would like to build. I don't know. There's two questions. Two questions. Um, Let me start in the back ahead. and come oh. forward. I think it's really right to link Gates and Duterte because Gates, for, for those who don't know, Max talks about this in the book, he infamously uh, said to a Senate Judiciary oh. Committee that he would like to take every drug user out and shoot them, which is, you know, essentially, yeah, President Gates practically, yeah. Yeah, if anyone. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and what we've seen actually is something that's recent. I don't know if anyone's seen it, the podcast on Cops, the TV show. There's a podcast series that's been done on a TV show Cops, um, thinking through like the production of that show that's been running for 30, you know, some odd years. Um, 
in creating that kind of cultural production about shaping images and Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think like the most success, if we want to, I mean, I don't always like talking in like success or failure because I think that that gets away from like the vision of what activists were trying to achieve. But if we actually want to like look at like, if we go to the ground and think one of the biggest things that is dismantling this intelligence division is that it led, they organized for years um, that then led to a kind of multi-part lawsuit that led to the dismantling of the Public Disorder Intelligence Division. Um, it, what's that? That was in the early 80s. The lawsuit ends in like multi-stage, like 83, 84, they pay out restitution. Um, they end up finding out that there had been a, this like LAPD officer that had been sharing a lot of intelligence with a right-wing like um, organization called Western Goals that was rooted in DC. And so they were sharing, so there's all this kind of nitty gritty that's in the book, I think, on all this. But so it's in the early 80s. And then what they got is that there was, they, it required annual audits of the new anti-terrorist division. Um, but after 10 years, the police department started to push back at that. And in the early 90s, especially after, I'm gonna blank on my dates um, on what it was that they were responding to. But in the, yeah, Oklahoma City and some others, but a little bit before that even, yeah, it was before it. The police department started to push back to say, "No, we need greater latitude to to surveil groups." Um, even so, there were those successes. Like that's a major success, I th I think. Like in terms of actually dismantling this intelligence division, I you know if you the Kappa papers at the Southern California Library, they collected every annual audit then of that anti-terrorist division in the archive, and so they have that greater transparency. That's a big one. I mean, '92 is a big one. I mean, and the other thing which we haven't talked about is, uh, what, excuse me? Charter Amendment F, um, like coming after Rodney King, um, where they restructured the city. I argue in the book that that doesn't happen without decades of organizing. Um, we haven't talked at all about Rampart scandal and what comes out of that, like consent decree. And so, the, and I think those are all, well, some people might not say, well, that wasn't activist, that was just politicians. The argument I try to make in the book is that decades of activism created the context and groundwork within which then those reform, reforms occurred. Um, and then there were, did small, you know, there were very small things like the business card thing I was talking about, um, pushing to get like, um, uh, pushing individual cases around like police shootings that became publicized. The, I mean, the famous one is Yule of in 1979. Um, this African-American woman who gets gunned down in her front yard by the police and, you know, and publicizing around that, that leads to bigger investigations. And so there's layers to it, I think. Yeah, in terms of the corruption question, I mean, I think Rampart's the big one, obviously. Um, you know, in some ways, you, a lot of the kind of 80s 
gang injunction stuff that develops there. There's a lot of kind of like internal stuff that's going going on in the department. But I think with all of these movements, we see residents and activists organizing, you know, especially around gang injunctions, pushing back against the use of gang databases and stuff like that. It's all, I mean, I would argue that a lot of the changes that we see are, they come from grassroots kind of organizing to push forward um, those changes, right? They're not coming from top down, polit you know, either the politicians or the police saying we're gonna change how we operate. It's because people organized around to push forward those changes. What time we have, how much time we have? What I mean, I think that's, that can be one kind of like thinking through like, yeah, I mean, that's one, um, you know, kind of thinking through like, you know, I think police departments have tried to do things that like change their internal dynamics, but that leaves the, um, the question to the internal operations of the police department, not necessarily it's larger kind of. Yeah, I mean, well, if I take from like the Coalition Against Police Abuse, I mean, I think that like an act of archiving and collecting and creating a, creating a record is one that is, that allows for, you know, an attempt to, attempt to push for records is one that's a key strategy, I think, you know, moving forward is that it provides a way that, you know, to actually try to create a, you know, a paper trail as resistant as the police are, is that one of the things that the Kappa was doing very explicitly was collecting material and pushing for like in lawsuits, like dis discovery documents, to discover documents from the police to and then get those in the public record. This, the other thing that I haven't talked about actually is that they also collected their own police complaints. Because oftentimes residents didn't think that if they complained to the police department that the complaint would go anywhere. And oftentimes they're right. But what Kappa then did is collect, created forms for police complaints and created their own records of complaints against the police. And so they created an alternative archive, right, um, about, that's a record of, you know, discontent with the police that doesn't just go into the police department's own. So I think that's another kind of organizing strategy around creating these kind of alternate kind of archives, if you, again, to use that term, um, moving forward, is that it's not just about, because I think they were really innovative in that way, it's not just about like pushing the police, but also flipping it and saying, well, we're also gonna create our own kind of account, like, and so they worked with the ACLU and stuff and had these police misconduct centers where they would 
let community members voice grievances um, that then they would help in certain cases take to lawsuits and stuff like that against the department. So, and one thing that I think some of that archiving reveals also takes us back to the question and the point about Trader Joe's, which is that police are most often agents of harm. And so, you know, I know as of a few years ago, I haven't checked the latest data, but if you were killed by another person intentionally in Los Angeles, there was like a, at least a 10% chance that it was a police officer who did that. You know, if we looked at like kind of homicide rates versus police killings. So if we're to think about that alongside, you know, the mountain of Kappa's archive and things like that, it's like, okay, well, we need to, at the very least, a very tiny moderate reform is to dramatically reduce police presence mm -hmm. and to dramatically reduce police power if we're interested in reducing aggregate social harm, which is something I'm, I'm very much interested yeah. in. And at the same time, innovating solutions like what occurred at, at Trader right. Joe's, which was, you know, a intervention of, you know, my understanding of it, I might not be remembering it correctly, was that it was someone who's trained in conflict mediation uh, who then engaged that training in, in action. Um, and so I think, to me, the uh, proliferating those type of people within our community without weapons, mm -hmm. who are not, you know, part of the police force, uh, but but growing the, uh, that as a kind of institutional footprint within yeah. the state um, could be a way to reduce, could be a better yeah. way to reduce harm. And that the archive from Kappa, the archive from Max's book, points out that the police have been ineffective at reducing harm. Yeah, and I mean, I think a really simple, like, thing that we think is, like, common sense, or, like, we think might be public information, is that we actually don't know how many people the police shoot every year, nationwide. There's, they've had those kind of projects to try to do that, but that's, like, just based on news report, right? And so it's, like, these are things that, like, the police don't even report somewhere. And so, like, there's this kind of lack of knowledge, I think, that um, is a key piece, too. Yeah, so, no, I mean, that's, so go ahead, if you want to. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to finish off with, like, you know, I definitely am opposed to, like, all type of surveillance and, and everything that also aside from just the human aspect that they use to, to monitor and to oppress, but, you know, I do see some value in the fact that we can also use those tools to our advantage. So I feel like, you know, um, if the Washington Post isn't documenting how many people are being killed, we should be, you know, we should be having Yeah. Well, and what your point is that one of the historical examples that I point out in the book in the 60s is there's a group called the Community Alert Patrol. Um, and they form after the killing of a black man named Leonard Deadweiler um, in six, 1966. And what they do is follow the cops to try to, as observers. And that group becomes so trusted by the community that they're asked to then maintain safety in certain, at certain events like the Watts Summer Festivals um, in 66, 67, 68, where then it is the, a true community policing because there's these groups that came together to say, first we're forming to provide accountability to the police because we're gonna observe arrests 
and watch. And then it became so trusted that communities were asking them to serve as like security at certain big events rather than the police. And so it, it, was, it was the community alert patrol. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> I know I scared some people away. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.